0: So first, let me introduce myself. My name is Tom, and I have the privilege of serving as the Youth Minister here at DSC. And I'd like to begin this morning with a question. What is the greatest role you've ever been given? And you may answer this in a variety of ways. Maybe it will be a job where you were promoted to have a great position with authority and responsibility. Maybe it's when you were the captain of a sports team or you led a band. That was a great position that you had, a great role. And maybe for some of us who have been blessed in this way, we would say that the greatest role we've had is to be a parent, to actually shepherd children into the kingdom. And they're all good and great roles. But I put to you this morning that the greatest role that one can ever have and be given is to bear witness to Jesus. And that's where we're going in this text. So let's read it, or let me read it for us. Turn with me to Acts chapter one, and it's verses six through 11. Acts one, verses six through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, This is the ascension of Jesus described and it's described twice in this masterwork of Luke. First at the end of Luke's gospel and then here at the beginning of Acts. It is thus the hinge between each part of his work. So what we're gonna see in the text is first an incredible commission, then a description of the ascension, and then lastly, a call to get moving. So let's tackle the first one, an incredible commission. This is in verses six to eight. And within this part, there's gonna be a gentle rebuke by Jesus and then a certain promise. So Let's look at first the gentle rebuke. In verse six, the disciples, the 11, they ask him when they've gathered together, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And in some ways, this is a very understandable question because you'll see in verse three of this chapter that Jesus has been speaking about the kingdom. So in that sense, it's an understandable question. However, it is a misguided one, and one that will get a gentle rebuke from Jesus. Quick word first on the kingdom of God. So in the New Testament, the kingdom kingdom of God is referring to both God's rule or reign and the realm of God. But it's in the first sense, it's mostly referring to. So this dynamic sense, it refers to God's sovereignty, his sweeping sovereignty, in fact, over all that he has made. And we know from Jesus' teaching and the rest of the New Testament that it has come in Christ. That Christ is the one who ushers the kingdom in. People enter this kingdom by faith in him. So the kingdom has come in Christ. But we also know that there awaits a a full coming of the kingdom called the consummation. So it's both now in Christ And as his gospel is preached through his cross, it has come, but it's also yet to come in all of its fullness at the last when God's reign is full and is consummated. So why is it a misguided question? Well, again, look with me at verse six. They ask, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they they have some assumptions here regarding this kingdom of God that has come. And part of it from what they ask is that they are looking to a political uh, regime that they see Christ as bringing in. And in one sense, we may sympathize because they were under the oppressive rule of the Romans at this time. So when they say restore, it means they're looking back to the glory days of the kingdom of David and when he was king, when they were an independent nation, and they're longing for that, and they think Jesus is gonna do that, that he will be a political king, and he will thus free them from the oppression of the Romans. And the the disciples and the followers of Christ have struggled with this before this point in Acts. So on the road to Emmaus, the two disciples who don't know that they're talking to the risen Lord will say, well we're sad because we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, the mother of James and John. She will try and get an inside track to this kingdom that she sees as a political kingdom and ask for a lofty place for her two sons. But Jesus says that his kingdom is not of this world. Jesus' mission is to redeem a people to God and give them eternal life. It's cosmic in scope, it's not merely to have a political regime, it is to save people from their sins and reconcile them to God. So they have a wrong assumption here, and thus it's a misguided question. But there's also some nationalism here. Likely in the sense that they see God's people as being from Israel, ethnically, and maybe even alone from Israel. Well, the rest of the book of Acts and the New Testament shows that that is clearly not the case. God's people are made up from all nations and tribes and tongues. And that will be worked out through the book of Acts. So it's a misguided question. And in verse seven, Jesus will give a gentle rebuke to it. He will say, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So here, Jesus, exp- exp- uh, Jesus is uh, countering the very explicit bit where they ask for the timing. Will you at this time restore Israel? Jesus says, basically, it's none of your business. It's not for you to know. It is the sovereign will of the Father to know how this all will come to pass, and specifically the timing of it. It's not for you. Jesus says nothing if not clear. that it's not for them to know. This is the knowledge that God the Father has. But he doesn't leave it there. He then gives a certain promise. And this is in verse eight. Jesus promises and says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until to the ends of the earth. What an incredible promise this is. These 11 are gonna be empowered by the coming of the Spirit for the purpose of being witnesses to Jesus. This is global mission, this is worldwide mission that they're being given this role of. What an incredible commissioning this is. And it's not like this might happen. Jesus says, you will. It is certain they will serve him as his spirit-empowered witnesses when the spirit comes in around 10 days from now at Pentecost. What an incredible commission they're given. They are pro- gonna proclaim him as Lord and Savior as the Son of God through whom by faith we come under the rule and into the realm of God. What an incredible role that they're given. And then in verse nine, let's look at the actual event that the text describes. This is Jesus' ascension and it's told from the point of view of the disciples. So try your best as we look at this to put yourself there with them and see what happens. So verse nine. When he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What this describes then is not Jesus merely levitating or rising. He ascends and he does so because God lifts him up. God is the subject when it says he he was lifted up. God is the one doing that action. He's lifting Christ up and from their perspective he disappears in the clouds. That's what's happening. This isn't told as a great concept or a metaphor for something, this is history. And Luke is recording it as an actual event. And they see Jesus ascend. Where does he go? Well, scripture tells us very clearly in 1 Peter 3, verse 22, that he ascends to the right hand of the Father and there he is enthroned and takes his seat. He isn't floating around in the atmosphere, He ascends to the very presence of the Father. And in a moment we'll look at some of the significances of the ascension and why and how it is so glorious. But we must know that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. So God has done this. Christ has ascended. And in that sense from their perspective, he's departed. This isn't a coming and going as he's been doing for the past 40 days where he would appear and then be with them and teach them and have fellowship with them, and then he would suddenly go, and then only to return again. No, this is a final departure, as shown as he transcends and ascends, I should say, in the clouds. But as it is a departure from the disciples' point of view, it's an arrival from the hosts of heaven's point of view. Because Jesus goes to the Father, and why is all this so glorious? Well, some reasons, and there's so much that could be said here, Firstly, it completes the work of redemption. We we, we praise God rightly so much for the incarnation. We praise Him rightly for His cross and His resurrection. We don't praise Him much, do we, for His ascension? It completes the whole work. We're not redeemed, reconciled to God without His ascension. So it completes the very work of God to save a people for Himself. It's also Jesus' homecoming and his coronation. Homecoming because this is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who has always existed and is in loving and perfect union and knowledge with God the Father. But in the incarnation, and specifically in his cross, he became a curse for all those who trust in him. He bore the wrath of the Father, and he'd never done this before, Now, in the ascension, we see the beauty of his homecoming. He returns to the Father as the risen Lord, as the King of glory, and he will be declared the King of glory. Why and how? Because of his cross, his perfect sin-bearing death for his people, where he conquered all the powers of evil, and now by his ascension reigns over them. If you'll forgive the next illustration, given by the fact of my accent, you can tell where I am from. And this could be somewhat awkward due to the origins of this country in relation to the English monarchy. <laughs> but nevertheless, if you'll forgive me, the current Queen of England had a day where it was her coronation. Now, I didn't, was not alive during that time, but my father was. And he has told my brother and I, and he would tell you, that this day when she was crowned as the monarch of the kingdom, she had all the regalia and all the human glory, as is it appropriate, a queen, a monarch, and she walked down the middle of this great aisle, with hundreds if not thousands there, and she sat on the throne of England, and she was crowned. This was her coronation. And the result for the subjects of the kingdom? People in England rejoiced. They, they were so glad and joyful. In fact, they actually had parties in the streets. They got tables, and they took them out and put them in the roads, and they put what we call bunting, which is kind of like streamers all over the place, and they ate meals together, and they rejoiced because she had been crowned as their monarch. Well, as much as that's dear to me as an Englishman, it pales into insignificance compared to Christ's coronation. Luke 15 tells us that the hosts of heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Imagine the glory when the king of glory returns and sits on his throne, how the angels would have rejoiced. What a glorious ascension this is. It is both his homecoming and his coronation because of his ministry of the cross. But it's also our guarantee because Jesus is our intercessor. And he he is our mediator, so scripture says in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, that there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Did you get that? The man Christ Jesus. He is fully God and fully man still. He has entered into God's presence. Yes, it's a glorified humanity, but he is still fully human. And it's necessary that he is for us. He intercedes for us because of his blood. He pleads his blood before the Father if Satan should ever be so bold as to accuse us. He does that, Christian, for you. And we know this because of his ascension. His great high priestly role for us. And it's through his blood. And it's continuing. The incarnation was not for a moment and then he puts off humanity. No, he's redeemed it. He sits at the right hand of the Father today as man, as the redeemed man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, your great high priest, and he intercedes for you because of his perfect sin-bearing work of the cross. If you watch the news much, we could put it like this, and it is a relatively bleak affair to watch the news, I will admit, but you know on the news that they will go throw to a reporter and the reporter will be wherever they need to be round the world, say. And they'll use language like this, the host or the anchor will say, and now to our man in Tokyo, or to our man in London, Jesus, we can say, is our man in heaven. And it's by his blood he's risen, and he has redeemed a people to himself. If you are united to him this morning by faith, he eternally intercedes for you. What a great God we serve. And how worthy of our praise he is. And thus he's our guarantee. Because Jesus, not as a spirit just floating around as if in the ether. Because he has entered God's presence. Fully human. That means we will enter God's presence fully human. He is the first human to be accepted into the presence of the Father. But he's by no means the last. He is our guarantee of salvation. Because he is in God's presence accepted as the king of glory. And then lastly, our text points out a fact that is important also in the gloriousness of the ascension. The ascension is necessary for Jesus to send his spirit, his promised spirit. He says, it's better if I go, for for you it's better because if I don't go, the spirit won't come. The spirit of God will come at Pentecost and here his work is to empower God's people to witness to Jesus. And so it's a glorious ascension because it's necessary for the Spirit to be sent. Us as Spirit-filled Christians, those who the Spirit lives in, have been redeemed by God. So much more could be said, but there are just some reasons why the ascension is so wonderfully glorious that we should remember. And then in verse 10 to 11, or from verses 10 to 11, Jesus has ascended, he's ascended into the clouds, He's gone to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And then something that might seem a bit strange occurs. Verse 10, while they, that is the disciples, were gazing, staring intently into the sky, into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Now these are angels. We know this because, firstly, they suddenly appear. They weren't there previously, and then suddenly they're there. So the disciples, the 11, are staring into the sky and we may have great sympathy with them, for where else would they be looking? Jesus has just ascended in glory. So of course, they're looking. But these two angels have a gentle rebuke for them. And they say this, in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? The point here is it's a rhetorical question. There's not an answer. The point is it's not appropriate anymore. Christ has ascended. He's departed and is now at the right hand of the Father. You have work to do. You have been commissioned, and Jesus has told them specifically to go to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, and wait for the coming of the Spirit. That's what they've been told to do. Idly standing by looking into the sky is not appropriate now. Christ is gonna work to save through them and empower them by His Spirit, the very Spirit of God and of Christ to be his witnesses. That's what's coming. It's time to get moving. So the angels tell them, what are you doing looking into the sky? Get going, get moving. But that's not all the angels say. Second half of verse 11, they give a wonderful certain promise, just as Jesus did. They say this, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And we know this that in uh, Luke 21 verse 27, that it's the same manner as Jesus rose and ascended into the cloud, he's gonna descend when he comes again. Through the clouds and thus in the same manner and he's gonna come as the God-man. They're not to be looking for someone else. Jesus is gonna return. And scripture tells us that Jesus comes to deliver his people to take them into God's presence eternally. Yes, and that is wonderful and that is an aspect of his second coming that is right and we should praise him for. But it's not the only aspect that scripture teaches. Paul in Acts 17, as well as, these are just instances, this is all the way through the New Testament, as well as in 2 Timothy 4 verse one, makes the point that Jesus is coming again to judge. It's been appointed for him to judge. And what that means, friend, today, is if you are not united to Christ by faith and you remain in that state, that on the day when he returns, when the full consummation of his rule and reign and the reign of God comes, you will deserve the righteous judgment of God. And that is how, and don't picture how like the media portrays it so often as kind of a kitschy, ridiculous, characters in red, with red skin being somewhat campy and no Hal is a reality and it's something that should terrify us it should terrify because, because it is a terrifying prospect HAL is described in the new testament as eternal conscious torment away from the presence of god all that is good and glorious and holy separated rightly That judgment, friend, is your destination, and it's the destination of all of us before we came to Christ. But if you are not trusted in him, then you are not united to him by faith. You do not have him as an intercessor for you. He is not your great high priest. His blood is not atoned for your sin. You, in fact, have your sins, you're in fact still in your sins. You will bear the wrath for them. The wrath of God remains on you. The good news is today, turn to him he says come to me and i will give you rest you will not find a savior who will push your way at arm's length if you repent and believe in him you turn from your way you'll know that you have a, a great intercessor the god man on your behalf who guarantees your salvation forever and ever and gives you new life because he's risen don't wait come and talk to someone today and turn to Jesus and trust in him. The other thing that the pointing to the second coming shows is the end of world mission, the end of their commission to be witnesses in all the the world, first in in Jerusalem and then going outward to surrounding areas and ultimately to the end of the earth. That phrase, it points to the end of the known world, that's what it meant then. It's wherever people are, all people, all over the world. That's the great commission they've been given and pointing to the second coming shows that the end of it is sure. It will achieve or God will achieve his purposes through it. He will redeem a people, none will be lost. All those that he draws to himself will be saved from all over the world, from all different countries and tribes and tongues, he will bring his people in and his coming again is absolutely certain. What an encouragement it is. Now what about for us today? Well I think there's two natural responses or two responses we should have to the truth of this passage. The first, it may seem obvious, but it must be said. We should see the ascension. We should see the glorious commissioning here and we should see the call to get moving and we should praise God. We should worship Him. This was in fact the response of this 11 in Luke 24. Luke records that they don't, they're not sad, they're not down. We may think they would be because Christ's pres- bodily presence has ascended. It's, it's not there with them. His spirit is coming, but right now he's ascended. He's departed from them, but they're not sad. Luke 24 tells us that they do indeed go to Jerusalem, as they were told, and they rejoice, they worship God. It brings rejoicing and praise to God for his glory, and the ascension has led them to that. And so it should for us. Now we aren't witnesses in exactly the same way. So in a special sense, the 11 were witnesses, in a legal sense, if you will. They were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and here, his ascension. But what they witness to, or witness about, is Jesus. The risen Jesus, who they have encountered and been changed by. And the book of Acts will show that this commission, this promise, is not just for the eleven. It's in fact for the whole church. It's for every believer. We see that others are empowered by God's Spirit and testify to Jesus and preach Him and proclaim Him. Examples would be Stephen and Philip and Paul himself. They were witness to Jesus, empowered by His Spirit. And in Acts 4, uh, right at the end of Acts 4 31, I believe, the actual Community of faith will be praying for two of the disciples and asking God for boldness as they've just come out of prison. And the Spirit will empower them and they, all that community, will go and speak of Christ. They will be his very witnesses. The rest of Acts shows that the church will go out with this great news and will witness to Jesus among all the nations. But it's not finished. You'll note at the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul in Rome and the word is going out unhindered. He's preaching, in fact, about the kingdom. He's teaching about the kingdom and Jesus. But that doesn't mean it's finished. In one sense, it was sort of the end of the earth, but Rome was just a conduit to go out from there. We live today, brothers and sisters, in the time where the gospel is still going out. This work isn't finished yet. We've received this wonderful commissioning to be his witnesses, the greatest of all roles that one could ever have and thus we ought to praise him. And I'd ask you this morning, in light of this teaching, in light of the truth of the ascension, so often forgotten, so neglected by us, do you praise God for Jesus' incarnation at Christmas and other times? Yes, you should, right that you should. Do you praise him for his crucifixion and the resurrection, so at Easter? Yes, and it's right that you should. Do you praise him for his ascension for you? You should. We should. And it struck me just this week, personally, as I read this, the conviction that I ought to praise God for the complete work of redemption. Not forgetting his ascension. Not forgetting his continual work for me to intercede, to plead his blood on my behalf. How we ought to praise God and worship him for Jesus' ascension. But then secondly, I think there's a challenge. And the challenge here is that they also, the disciples actually obey Jesus as a result of the ascension. They go to Jerusalem. So this is the Mount of Olives. It's about a day's journey from Jerusalem. They return there, as Luke shows us. They obey what Jesus tells them to do. And there they await the coming of the Spirit in fulfillment of all Jesus says here. They obey him, so we ought to obey. And there's a challenge. Uh, many of you probably know this, but in case any of you don't, Gina and I, uh, my, that's my wife Gina, we met as missionaries, so we were, it's a bit of a peculiar story, we were on a boat for two years with 400 other Christians from over 50 different nationalities, and we sailed around the world, it wasn't a cruise, that's the way to make most people angry who were on it, people say, oh, do you enjoy your cruise? You say, no, it wasn't a cruise at all. I was there as a volunteer and worked six days a week. It's not quite a cruise. But what we did get to see was the, the gospel going out. Jesus proclaimed in the different places we went, in the Caribbean, in West Africa, in the Middle East, and in Asia. We had the tremendous privilege of seeing Jesus witnessed to. One example of this was in Dubai, so in Dubai, Uh, I went on a church team, this happened regularly whenever we would go to a port in a certain country and we would go off to churches to bless them, to preach, to do song worship, uh, et cetera. And in this particular case, we left at about six in the morning. We returned to the ship at about 11 p.m. that evening. So in case you think this service is long, let me tell you, that was an extremely long day. But it was a great day because in Dubai we went to a complex and it was a series of rooms and buildings, and different services met. There was the Pakistani service that met there, the Indian service, the Chinese service, and we, myself and the team, went to about 10 of the services, sometimes with very little space in between them. That's why we were so exhausted. But how wonderful to see people witness to Jesus from all over the world to people from all over the world. The gospel's going out. But here is the challenge for us, but also an opportunity within this challenge. We are called to witness to Jesus, to witness to the risen Lord that we have encountered and been changed so wonderfully by those who have been recipients of His grace. One good thing is, because of globalization, you don't necessarily need to go and travel to a far off country. You'll find that your neighbors, your colleagues, friends, people you just meet, in the street or in a shop or whatever, will come from all sorts of different countries. Just in between the first service and this, a sister came up and said that uh, her son, who was only a young child, was on the playground just recently and he started witnessing to Jesus. Started talking about Jesus to a family that was from Persia, Persia. How great and marvelous that God speaks his word through children. You see that because of globalization, the world is on our doorstep, on your doorstep, even, you might even meet someone from England. This can happen. But your role is to be a Spirit-empowered witness to Jesus. And what an honorable, privileged role that it is. So I think we should be challenged. I don't just mean in the big sweeping, speaking to tons of people sense, but in even the one-on-ones. Myself, I've actually found since moving here from Europe that things are so spaced out, I've struggled to think, how do you witness to people, right? Like just the mall or the shopping center, that's, that's a place where people are, but that's a bit awkward. Some people do it. I don't think it's wrong, but it's awkward. But I've actually found that as I've prayed and asked the Lord for opportunities, asked the Spirit to help me and to give me the words that I ought to speak of the gospel, But it's been in the mundane little things. We were at a tax company doing our taxes a couple of years ago, and in the midst of the discussion, it was very technical, and obviously that was why we were there, the tax person turned to me, and one of the terrorist attacks, I think it was in France, had just happened. And she said, Why does God allow this? And I I was not expecting an opportunity to share the gospel. I was trying to figure out what on earth all of this meant. But God was faithful and I got an opportunity to share the gospel with her and talk about sin and talk about her state and talk about the risen Lord Jesus. What a privilege it was. So I think for us we we should and I encourage you to pray that God would grant you opportunities by his spirit. That he would give you the words to speak about Christ. That you would proclaim him to all people and be ready and willing but trusting in the spirit, dependent on the spirit. I give you the words to say. So in summation, my prayer is that we, as we encounter this truth, this glorious truth of the ascension, that it would lead us to worship God, or to worship Christ as the, our king, uh, the king of glory, the very king. And that we, as we consider all that he's done for us and continues to do for us, We would praise him, we would give him the honor and the glory that he deserves in all of our lives. We would sing his praise, it would be infectious, we couldn't help but talk about Jesus. That's what we see through Acts. Indeed, when the disciples are challenged by authorities and told, what have we told you about speaking in that name? They give maybe even a slightly sarcastic response and say, well, you have to do what you think is best. As for us, we're gonna talk about Jesus. What a wonderful God we serve. And what a privileged role. May we praise him and also be led because of our thanks for his grace to obey his commission here, to be his witnesses. We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't proclaim something, our hobbies or our interests. We proclaim him, risen from the dead. That is the commission you've been given, Christian. You've been risen with Christ. Your sins have been dealt with, the punishment paid. And now you get this wonderful role, the greatest of all roles, to witness to the risen Lord so that others would enter his kingdom. There is no greater role that we can fill and we trust the Lord that he would help us and we would be more dependent on him tomorrow than we are today. We would love him more because of what he's done and we would praise him with every opportunity. So let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, Lord, thank you for your cross. Thank you for your resurrection and thank you for your ascension. Thank you that you completed this work. You saved us, you saved all of us who trust in you. You have redeemed a people unto yourself and you're still saving today. You're reigning from the right hand of God and you deem that you would use us to be your witnesses. Lord, I thank you for the privilege it is to know you. Thank you for your grace. We're so undeserving. But you are merciful and a good Lord. And you are Savior. Lord, we praise you. And we thank you. In your name. Amen.